This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. I'm Robbie Shell with Knowledge at Wharton, and I'm here today with Sabria Tenberkin and Paul Cronenberg, co-founders of a school for blind children in Tibet. Sabria, who was born in Germany and has been blind since 12, attended the University of Bonn and studied, among other things, the cultures of Central Asia. From there, she traveled on her own to China and then to Tibet, where she translated the Tibetan language into Braille. And with Paul, whom she met in Nepal, they co-founded the school called, appropriately enough, Braille Without Borders. The two were also part of an expedition that led blind children up a 23,000-foot mountain next to Mount Everest. The expedition was chronicled in an award-winning documentary called Blind Sight. In 2009, the two of them started an educational and training institute in Kerala, India, called Kantari International. Its goal is to train disadvantaged people and help them become social entrepreneurs. So, it's very hard to summarize everything you've done, but can you start by telling me, Sabria, a little bit about Kantari and the motivation for setting it up? Okay. Kantari is um, a leadership training center for social visionaries from all around the world. And these are very, very special social visionaries. These are people who have overcome adversity in their life, who have been affected by social ill, and who want to uh, create an ethical social change in their regions and countries, for example, through schools, campaigns, movements, and so on and so forth. All right. And Paul, how, can you give me some examples of exactly how successful these students have been? Well, we have, in the last five years, we trained 98 uh, visionaries from 35 countries around the world, and people went back to their country to start their social projects. We have women fighting uh, the killing of albinos. Albinos are unfortunately being uh, killed and chopped up in pieces, and their body parts fall as good luck charms. And uh, we have uh, This is in East Africa and Kenya. We have a lady from Kenya who's fighting female circumcision. Um, we have ex-child soldiers from Liberia or Sierra Leone who now support um, street children who mostly ex-child soldiers and they teach them skills other than killing people. So there's a lot of different areas we're, uh, we're working in. Uh, we work with blindness, we work with people that are handicapped, we have um, people that are affected by wars, uh, people affected by discrimination and they go back, uh, so they come to us for a seven months course, they go back and create a social impact within their own community. So you're definitely involved in the whole area of social entrepreneurship, which is a, a pretty hot term these days. Um, and I'm wondering, what have you found works in this area and what doesn't work? Sabria, maybe you could answer that. Yeah, first of all, I, ha I have a problem with the term social entrepreneurship because it's um, people say only business helps to make the world a better place and I don't really agree. Um, we feel that there are many many other methods and tools that need to be focused on to make a sustainable difference. So for example people need to uh, create mindset changes through, for example, training centers or schools. And a school cannot always be run as a business or should not be run as a business. A campaign is not always a business. So I think um, it's very, very important to also concentrate, focus on other skills. Um, for example, social advocacy, um, uh, initiatives, inventions, art, art for social change, also very, very important. 
Paul, what does it take, do you think, for an individual to be a successful social entrepreneur? I think the, the, one of the most important parts of being successful is the drive. Uh, and an inner drive. And what we've looked at, if you look at the, the history of the world and how so sustainable social change has happened, it always came from within, uh, from within society, never came from outside. So what we looked at is we looked at people that have a drive. Where do people get a drive from? And that is, if, they, if somebody's been affected by social ill in such a bad way that they at some point come up and say, like, I now stop. Now I've got to do something. And we call that the Gandhi moment. Or the pinching uh, point. Or the pinching point. Uh -huh, so right. Gandhi was kicked out of the train in South Africa. He had a first-class ticket because of his skin color. He was kicked out. And at that moment, he became the Gandhi we know today. And this is what we look for in any individual that we train in our, in our uh, Kantari uh, training course. Maybe one thing about Kantari. Kantari is a very, very small chili in Kerala. It grows in the backyards of society in the backyards of, of, the, of, um, of Kerala's uh, yard. And uh, it's very small, but highly spicy. And it is medicinal. So it purifies the blood. It makes you very, very alert. It lowers the blood pressure. So it's very, very healthy for the people. And we see Kantari as a symbol for a new type or for an old and new type of leader. Uh, somebody who has fire in the belly, who has spice in their action, who uh, is able or has the guts to challenge the status quo and someone who comes up with innovative and new solutions for old and new problems. And, uh, and therefore, we call these leaders Kantaris. Gotcha. So some people might say that the business uh, field has co-opted social entrepreneurship or tried to co-opt it in, in, in a way that um, has good connotations and bad connotations, but you do see a role for the business community in this area. Is that correct, Paul? Yes, um, business definitely plays a role. And what we've done is, uh, Kantari, uh, our logo has five colors. And we looked at five colors because there is one particular color, it's our orange. That's the business person that has a business uh, a mind of, and a business mindset, because they use business to create social change. Um, but we have other colors as well, and as Samaria uh, mentioned, uh, the green one is for initiators that are people that start up projects like schools and training centers, and these always cost money. But what we look at is we see that if people want to invest money, and unfortunately in the world today, the return of investment is measured in one dimension only, and that is money. And what we see is a return of investment in a better world. So if people want to invest in a green Kantari, that is someone who sets up a project where people are trained who are affected by or who are from the margins of society, but that results in a better world in the long term, it's a good investment. Um, you have a yellow Kantari, which is technology. And we feel that everybody who needs technology uh, that to be part in society, to take part in society, like for Sabria, a cane or a braille typewriter or a speech synthesizer, that should come at low or no cost. So that's a sharing of, of technology. The orange one is the business. Then we've got the, um, the red ones. These are the advocates, the Gandhis, the Sabrias, people that fight for rights or fight against injustice. And then we've got the purple ones. And these are the, the artists, the stars. In, in India, there's one uh, famous person is Shahrukh Khan. And Shah Rukh Khan goes dish, dish. And everybody buys a dish to watch TV. Can you imagine if he would say solar, solar? Uh -huh. India would be solar in two solar days. energy, right, <laughs> interesting. So, Supriya, you've made headlines for many things. You rode into, into Tibet on a horse uh, long after you became blind. You've co-set up with Paul the school for Tibetan blind children, and, and you have taken a, a leading role uh, in, the, in the documentary. 
Um, all along, your philosophy has been to never consider blind people as victims, um, to never consider that they're anything less than sighted people. How difficult has that been to sustain, um, and, and has the prejudice against blind people um, lightened up at all? Um, I have the feeling that in Tibet there is a change, because our kids, um, they're going out with their little kitty canes and um, they demonstrate that they have a role to play in the society of, um, of Tibet. Um, so, so they really make a difference. People normally uh, came uh, to, to Lhasa from the outside and, uh, and when they saw a blind person they would, would shout like Shargo or Shara and that means nothing less than blind fool and nowadays actually these kids they just turn around and they say well can you uh, read and write in the dark? Can you speak three languages fluently? And of course they cannot and uh, these kids they are actually uh, confident enough to show to the world, well, blindness is not necessarily a disability. Um, it can be a quality of life. I, I give you one example. Um, Kumi, for example, he's, he's a little boy. He was a little boy. And he was sitting in the courtyard and he was smiling from ear to ear. And we were uh, coming to the courtyard and say, hey, Kumi, what's up? And he said, I'm so happy. And I said, <laughs> why are you happy? He says, I'm happy because I am blind. Now, when you say this to a sighted person, he said, no, this is not possible, mm -hmm. you know? Right. But this little boy, he knows he's the only one in his family who can read and write. He's the only one in his village who can speak three languages fluently, Tibetan, Chinese, and, uh, and, and English. And he's the only one in his whole region who can serve in the internet and who knows that the world is round. And this, despite the fact or actually because of the fact that he is blind. And this creates a change in the blind, in the confidence of the blind, in the confidence of the blind, but also in society who understands we should concentrate on the possibilities, not necessarily on the disabilities. So this could be true for any disability. If you're deaf, Absolutely. if you are, if you have a problem walking. And there are so many disabilities that we don't even see. People who are scared to talk to outsiders, people who are scared to go into the city. My God, this is really a disability. Well, interesting. So, Subriya, why did you why did you study Central Asia when you were a student? What was it that first got your interest going there? Well, m mainly it was um, it was the urge to have adventure, to have an adventurous life and also to escape from Germany where everybody knew what I could do and what I could not do. And I wanted to test my own limits. I wanted to overcome these limits and maybe get even a step higher. And for me, Tibet was probably the most adventurous place to be. And yeah, and I love horses. I love mountains. I love kayaking, white water kayaking. Um, and, uh, and that was a very egoistic reason why I studied Tibetology at first. Later, um, responsibility for this project or the, the enthusiasm for uh, creating something for blind kids came along with it. So you have the drive that you look for in all the people who come to Kantari. Yes. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the documentary Blindsight was so amazing, and I hope everyone has a chance to watch it like I did. Um, what I thought was so impressive was how you were able to chronicle the lives of these six 
Tibetan kids along with the, the challenges that you all faced climbing up 23,000 feet. I, I still am not sure where the name Blindsight came, by, came from, and Paul, I wonder if you could explain that. I think Sabri is the better one to explain uh, that one. Okay, Sabri, <laughs> over to you. So Blindsight is actually, um, uh, it's, um, it's something that some people have. Uh, it's a shortcut in the brain um, where uh, the visual cortex thinks um, that one still sees, despite the fact that this person doesn't actually see a bit. And actually, I'm, I probably most likely have blind side because what happens now when we are sitting here in this room and I look at you and I look at you um, I actually see you sitting there but in fact I don't see anything I mean people can test it I don't see a thing I don't see light and dark but I see you sitting there I see um, long blonde hair I see um, uh, that you wear glasses well if this is true or not, I don't care, <laughs> you know, I don't really care. Right, it doesn't matter. Um, and it doesn't matter. And, um, uh, but, but my visual cortex thinks that everything that comes into my mind um, from the outside, whether it's acoustically or uh, through smell or through, um, through touch, um, that this is actually a picture that I got through my eyes. And this is called blind sight. I can add maybe one anecdote sure. to that. Uh, blind people are not disappointed by reality, as long as they don't know reality. Oh, interesting. So Sabrina and I, when we first met in Tibet, uh, Sabrina thought I had dark hair, black hair from my voice. And, and she, blue eyes. And, and blue eyes. Okay. And she likes dark hair and blue eyes. Oh, right. So she, uh, she went home, she took a lot of pictures, and I happened to be on some of the pictures, and she went home to her parents and friends, and they asked, who's the blonde guy in your pictures? And she said, blonde guy? <laughs> I don't know, it must have ran in front of my camera. So then uh, half a year later we met and then Sabria said, well, Paul, you were there. Um, maybe you know who these blonde guys are my pictures. And I said, well, that's me. And then she was so very interesting. disappointed. Uh, so. It's so interesting. <laughs> wow. Um, so throughout all these initiatives that you've undertaken and the successes and the stresses, what's been your most difficult challenge? Paul, maybe you can tell me first and then I'll ask Sabrina. Okay, I think one of the most difficult challenges is that people that uh, don't believe in big dreams and believe in our dreams. And um, I think this is, the, this is a, a big obstacle for uh, progress at large in our world is that people don't believe in dreams of others and that people say and that dreaming has a negative connotation. And I have to tell you just a small anecdote on that as well because with our students, when they first came to us, they came from dark rooms, they were locked out of society. And when they first came to us, we thought, how can we give them hope for the future? Because every person has to have that. And we gave it a long thought and we came up with something beautiful and we, we started a dream factory. And we asked our students, what is it that you want to do? And this doesn't count only for blind kids, it's for everyone in the world. What do you want to do? Not your parents, your brothers, your sisters, you. It's your life. You've got to work for 40 years. Can you imagine you do something that you don't love doing? You, know, become, you become one of the, thank God it's Friday people. You don't want to be there. <laughs> so we gave this to our students. And one week after, we asked them you know, to share their dreams. And there's Norbu, he's eight years old. He has a big smile on his face. And he says, I want to become a taxi driver. <clears throat> the only problem is he can't, can't see. see. Right. So, but if you look at all the taxi drivers anywhere in the world, you think they were blind anyway. So we never say that something is not possible. That's why it's Braille without borders. That's the borders, the mental borders. So two years later, we said, fantastic. Two years later, we asked, we asked Nobu, what about your dream? And then he said, with a smile on his face, he said, well, now I know that I can't become a taxi driver because that's rather dangerous, but I could set up a taxi company and run it. Ten years old. 
And that's what it's about. And I think that's what our biggest problem was, that people didn't believe in our dream. And of course, then you have to be stubborn and you have to find a team to work together and to make it happen. Now in Kerala, in, in Kantari, we have a global dream factory, a springboard for dreamers or for social visionaries who create their visions. Um, and we are all believers in these visions. Therefore, we select them carefully, of course, also, you know. But they have huge dreams, you know. But um, the, the great thing is we encourage them to dream and we make, we give them tools to realize their dreams. Um, we have uh, international experts who are there to teach or to catalyze them, to push them forward. Uh, to make their dreams come true. And, um, and the thing is with, with the Kantari, you know, everyone e uh, experience when they have big dreams, people say, oh, it's not possible. Stay on the ground. Don't grab for the stars, you know. And here they can just say, just bite into a Kantari. And you know that a small chili can make a huge difference. Right. Right. And this is what they learn in our Kerala center. But in, in terms of specific challenges, is it Funding is funding difficult. Is it um, getting people to buy into the project? What what is it? Well, funding, of course, is is a is a major challenge. What we do, and what I mentioned before as well, it's um, the return of investment for a lot of people is money. And what Sabrina and I strongly believe in that a return of investment is a better world. Because if you look at the state of the world, we're not we're in a bad shape. And we have, there's plenty of money, there's plenty of resources, but it's not been divided in such way or used in such way that the return of investment comes in the form of access to clean drinking water, access to health care, access to food, access to elderly care, access to education. We can shoot something. Right now there is um, this probe that went to this, um, um, uh, what was it, asteroid. We can do all that. We shoot rovers to Mars and we can't solve these problems. And that's what we believe very strongly in. So if people are in a position to invest in a better future by supporting, for example, Kantari or any other NGO in your neighborhood, that would be a fantastic thing. The second thing how we can be helped, uh, where people can support us, is by talking about the existence, that we are there, that mm -hmm. we have this, because we have people from around the world that never had a chance to go to Wharton or to go to other big places. We take them. So if people can help spread the news that Kantari exists and knows about anyone anywhere in the world that carries a plan for social change and then link them to our website, uh, kantari.org, then they can apply there for the seven months course. Well, you, you may regret saying this because you may be deluged. Well, we hope we're going to have a lot of people applying because we want to work with the best people that really make, it, make an impact and, and, a, and a, a positive impact in this world. And, and for those who cannot start their own project but who want to help others, I mean, um, a scholarship would be, for example, an investment not in, a, in one individual, but really in the start of a project. Right. And for that, actually, we have a, um, we, we have a, um, a bank account here in, in America. We've got a 501c3 status, so that's right. a good thing. Right, so non-profit. Um, Sabria, you have received so many different awards um, from so many different institutions and, and individuals, including, just to name a few, the World Economic Forum, the President of Germany, Time Magazine, the Government of India, one year you were nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. I'm guessing that these awards don't mean that much to you, but if you had to pick one that did mean a lot, what would it be? Whew. <laughs> yeah, um, of course, awards are always good to know that we, our projects, our ideas are taken seriously. And, um, and therefore, I was actually quite happy about uh, this one award um, that the Chinese government gave us, um, 
uh, telling or with this award, they said that we belong to the 15 most influential people or influential foreigners in the last 30 years. And in that China. was uh, in, in China. In China. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, so, so that was an award that actually showed us that they don't only believe in women, <laughs> for one thing, but actually they believe um, that people who are handicapped or people who have so-called disability, who are blind, can actually be influential and can be contributors in a huge society like China, um, which I think um, could be done much, much more in other countries as well, that, uh, that they show with awards to disabled people um, that they believe in the qualities and in the importance of people with disabilities. Very nice. So my last question for you is, um, I don't, I don't want to be so crass as to say what's your five-year plan or your 10-year plan, <laughs> but I will say, what, what lies ahead? Where do you see yourselves going with all this? Where do you see your energies being concentrated? Are there new projects or is it expanding where you are now? What, what's up there? Okay, well, we, um, we have set up in Tibet, Braille Without Borders, we've set up Kantari in the south of India, and um, of course, most of our participants in, in Kantari come from Africa. That's, uh, and that's where we're now looking at uh, to create another campus in Africa um, so that we have, well, two places. Maybe it's, it's going to be Kantari Africa. It's going to be Kantari Asia. Maybe there will be a Kantari America one day. Uh, but the first one, the first focus, I think, will be a Kantari Africa in the, in the next few years. Sabria, does that sound... Absolutely, like it's, because like it's, it's another adve <laughs> adventure for me. Uh, I've never been to Africa. I have a lot of African friends and, of course, a lot of African students, participants who were at our center. Um, and I love the people. I love the cultures. Um, yes, and it's definitely a new adventure. Um, but, of course, we also will will have one leg in India, for sure. Always. Well, thank you both for coming and best of luck. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.